happiness is such a great topic because to think about happiness is to think about everything. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined today, as always, by Dave, the true philosopher, Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? <laughs> Good. I like from now. Can you just keep that one? No. And just call me no. that from now no, on. No, I can't because I've been le- reading a lot of Plato's Republic. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think you could handle the discipline of the guardians. Uh, I definitely and, and can't. That I definitely way. can't. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely can't. Yeah. Today we are joined by a very special <laughs> guest. Uh, I'm super excited. Dr. Jennifer Frey, who is, I think, what, you're a philosophy professor and the dean, the dean of yeah. the Honors College at Tulsa University, University of Tulsa. That's awesome. How are mm-hmm. you? I'm great. How are you? Doing so well. I'm super excited about this because I've Me been too. following your career for like a decade and I'm so excited. So I'm trying to contain my fanboyism, but uh, it's not it's not going to work out well. I don't know how to do that. I have no self-control. So, yeah, I've been following you a lot. So for those of uh, our listeners who don't know, I've been following uh, you do Thomistic Institute stuff, which is where I first came across some of your lectures. And then I went up to a buddy of mine. I was like, hey, you know, how we're starting this morality class at uh, at St. Anthony's. There's this uh, wonderful talk by this woman named Dr. Jennifer Frey. And he goes. Oh, yeah, yeah, University of South Carolina. Yeah, yeah, I met her a couple months ago. And I was like, what? And he was doing some presentation. I can't remember where. And every person that I bring up to my buddy Brian Jones, he's like, oh, yeah, I was doing this uh, event down at uh, University of St. Thomas. And they were there. And and so, anywho, so that's where I started exploring a lot of your uh, philosophy, a lot of your talks. And then I discovered Sacred and Profane Love. Oh, what an epic, (laughs) epic podcast. Yeah. It's the only one I listen to. It's the only podcast I listen to. Thank you. Wow. Certainly don't listen to this one. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody listens to their own podcast. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Uh, And if you do, you're probably a narcissist with low self esteem. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Crap. Change the subject. Change the subject. Uh, Yeah. So, can can I ask you one question about your professional job and your podcast? Okay. So sure. you, because of the big move from where where you were now into Tulsa, you've you've been playing the reruns, and I've been going through the reruns, yes. and I've been loving. Yes. I've been listening to Sacred Profane probably around episode forty, maybe. And uh, okay. but the reruns, you have uh, an excellent, <laughs> pugnacious conversation with the president of the University of Tulsa over um, <laughs> Alan Bloom's uh, what, yeah. what, closing in American yeah. Mind. Was that it? It was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that one of my we, favorite episodes. That and and, yeah, and the Cantable for Leibowitz. Yeah, those are my two top. Yeah, well, I still have pugnacious <laughs> conversations with Brad Carson, who's now my boss. <laughs> what, what is it? Did so, that did that precede the job offered invitation? Yes. Or? Yeah. So I. <clears throat> so I'll tell you a funny and very true story of how I came to to you. So I was saying very unflattering things about the University of Tulsa online. And <laughs> as one does, as one does, as one does, uh, having to do with a previous administration's decision to really kind of attack the liberal arts mm. um, and to close its philosophy department. And obviously oh, yeah. I had a problem with that, did not think that was a good decision. And I would occasionally kind of hate tweet about to you. And, and so I did that. This was in May of 2021. And I get this reply 
and it says, hey, Jen, we're not that bad. You should come visit us. And I was like, who is this? And I click on it and it's like Brad Carson, president of the University of Tulsa. And I was like, huh, did not know that the president of the University of Tulsa followed me on Twitter. <laughs> like, I, you know, yeah. and so I responded. I saved all these tweets, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would, too. Yeah. I responded and said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that you followed me. I also didn't say anything false. <laughs> like, like I, you know, like everything yeah. I said is true and just, but maybe I would have been slightly more diplomatic if I knew that you followed me. <laughs> and, and he was like, oh, no, but I mean it. We're not that bad and you should come visit us. And I was like, why? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, why, why would, would I, I want to volunteer to go to the wasteland of, of humanity? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I was <laughs> so like, uh, I was like, I don't <laughs> know if I was clear or not, but I'm, I'm not fond of your university. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, we had this exchange and I, I ended up coming. I came. So this, this exchange, very polite, pleasant exchange, somewhat awkward happened in May. And, and I was there just before Thanksgiving same year. Hmm. And I gave a talk called, why are we here? The purpose and value of the liberal arts. So it was a defense of yeah. liberal learning um, and the necessity of teaching philosophy in a university. So I came to really kind of defend my tweet, but in a m much more elaborate <laughs> philosophical sort of way. I just thought I was giving a talk. You know, I still sort of found it mysterious that, that any of this was happening. And that was when I recorded the podcast. Mm. Oh, okay. But that's Brad, oh, but, that's, okay. But Brad had an idea <laughs> in, in bringing me there, which I didn't know about. Um, and so he told me, you know, I really want to start an honors college. I want it to be like a mini St. John's. And I said, whoa, well, that's cool. It's yeah, I should totally true. do that. Yeah. That sounds great. And he was like, well, would you want to be Dean? And I was like, whoa, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. You don't have a philosophy department. Like that's a problem. Yeah. Anyway, to make a long story short, they have a philosophy department again. My husband has an endowed chair in it. And I did eventually come here. It took about a year and a half, but <laughs> I, I, I said yes. Nice. nice. Because I, as I, as I got to know Brad, I just, he's incredible and, and he's the best boss ever. And he enjoys pugnacious <laughs> philosophical exchange, <laughs> as do I. Yeah. So we get along really well. Academia should be like that across the board. That's the way it should be. Yeah. 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 Disputed yeah. questions in the hallway as you're passing by each other. You know, I love it. I love it. If, I mean, if, yeah, we'll include in the show notes here. We got to have that episode with The Closing of yeah. American Mind by yeah. Bloom and you guys talking about it. It was so funny. Yeah. 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 It was fun. I mean, it kind of honestly, like a lot of my conversations with Brad are like that. <laughs> and I enjoy them. I enjoy them so yeah. much. He's really smart. And he, of course, uh, enjoys doing philosophy and reading philosophy mm. and is just an incredible guy who has a great vision for this university. Yeah. I think my favorite quote from that episode, I don't know why it's, it's sticking in my head where he, he was like, well, I just think he's, uh, th this is Bloom showing him he's a 
like cantankerous old man and you're like yeah, i'm kind of a cantankerous old man inside of me or something like that like, yeah. i really am yeah i really am <laughs> so our main purpose of having you here is because we are doing a presentation this season on how to mm -hmm. evangelize the culture and one of our big components is oftentimes when we present the faith we can water it down so it's more palpable for people but also one of the things that uh, a temptation for people who evangelize and, and are actively trying to bring people into the church is we hide or water down or just, you know, ignore the church's moral demands, the church's moral teachings, because for many people, it's a it's a non-starter in our culture today. So mm -hmm. you have this. There's a saying from uh, Father Livio Molina where it says that uh, people hide behind the kerygma. They hide morality behind the kerygma. Not to show mm -hmm. its connection, but to keep people, get people to be converts. Just, you know, Jesus loves you. God loves you. You know, come into the church. And it's like, we're not presenting the way. And so one of the things mm -hmm. that we always want to do in evangelizing is do what JP2 said. Give them the full rigor and vigor of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously sin leads to ultimate unhappiness, destroys us. You know, we create hells for ourselves through our actions. So one of the big components of this season is using the lens of JP2, the master evangelist, to look at the sexual issues of our day and to evangelize the culture through this broader understanding of the, of the Catholic Church's view on morality and gospel and salvation. And so all of your work with the Templeton Foundation and all these lectures that you give on happiness, we thought this would mm -hmm. be an excellent way to kind of tie in all of these things to, to a Catholic understanding of our ultimate end. Because I don't think... Mm -hmm. I think we distort and we lose sight of what heaven is, what meaning is, what purpose is, what teleology is. You know, our, our, the average listener is, you know, a normal lay Catholic at home, a DRE, got a lot of priests and parochial vicars who listen, and they might not be card-carrying Thomas, but there's like elements of these things in, their, in mm -hmm. the ether, right? And mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. just want to help organize it and, and present it to okay. them. Yeah. They should be card-carrying, Thomas. They should be. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening to us, you better be. Just be. <laughs> you know what we should do? We should actually have a side hustle where we make cards we that make say, cards. I'm a Thomas. Oh, my gosh. But in parentheses, it mm -hmm. says, like, Ronarian. Or, you know, like, we just throw in these. <laughs> right. What kind of Thomas you are. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that would be very helpful. Yeah. 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 I'm a West Coast Straussian Thomas. Uh, no. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not. Remix. Uh yeah, so so you've done a lot of work in happiness. I watched your series on Word on Fire Institute, presenting that, stole from it shamelessly okay. for my high school class. Didn't give you any attribution. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But uh, yeah. uh, It's totally fine. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, so let's talk about happiness as it relates especially to Catholic morality. Because mm -hmm. you are, are going around with these conversations that you're having, especially with, I can't remember the woman at Yale. The Yale professor and the oh, Dr. Lori Santos. Thank yeah. you, thank you. I see awesome. her yeah. stuff gets recommended to me in the YouTube's mm -hmm. all of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, f I found your your conversations you know, about her so fascinating. So I don't know if you mm -hmm. want to kind of dive in here. Uh, do you just want me to tell people what went down with well, me and Dr. Santos? I think I think that's a cool. I think it's a good intro to to the notion sure. of happiness and the contrasting with an emotivist kind of view. Sure. So. My first tenure track job was at the University of South Carolina. And the first year in that job, I got the largest humanities grant in my institution's history. It was a multi-million dollar grant across disciplines, philosophy, theology, 
and variety of people from the social scientists. We had some economists and psychologists and things like this. And with the charge of the project was to study the interconnections between virtue, happiness, and meaning or purpose in life, which is <laughs> kind of broad. Nice and broad, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, it, I think at one point we had about 30 different scholars on our project doing interdisciplinary work. It was really fun and fascinating. One thing that project did for me was it gave me like a bigger profile than I otherwise would have had <laughs> as a junior professor in South Carolina. And that was when um, Veritas kind of noticed who I was and they invited me to a forum at Yale. So Veritas is um, a broadly Christian group that's dedicated to kind of defending uh, the perspective of the Christian faith through dialogue with people who don't share it on our college campuses. So they wanted to put me in conversation with Lori Santos. Lori Santos is famous because of a class she taught at Yale. Mm -hmm. It was the largest enrolled class ever in Yale's history. There were so many students that they couldn't fit in the auditorium they had, and they had to start to use the music hall. <laughs> we're moving to the gym. <laughs> yeah, it's something like that. Well, yeah. a very fancy gym because it's mm. Yale. But um, yeah. but anyway, there. so I was invited to attend her class, which I did. And then to have a dialogue, not really a debate, but a dialogue on stage with her that was moderated by somebody in the Div School who is also a card-carrying Thomist. Mm. And so, so that's what I did. And, you know, the class, I mean, basically, uh, just to kind of make this short, Lori Santos's point of view is that happiness is just like a mental state that you may or may not be in. It's completely material. And that what she calls virtues, which she also calls life hacks, um, are just... I can hear the disdain are, in here. <laughs> Sorry. Life yeah. hacks. She's got to make a living somehow. Yeah. 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 I think she's doing just fine in that regard. But um, but anyway, look, she's nice. She was very lovely. I mean, I this is not personal. But, um, you know, her, her basic view is that a virtue or a life hack is just some kind of habit that you get and it helps you be happy in the sense that it kind of like helps you be well-regulated so that you can meet your goals no matter what those goals are. So in the class that I went to, she was talking about procrastination and acrosia and kind of like, how do you stay committed to your goals? And the thing about this view is like, you know, this this would work out if you were like Eichmann, right? And you just wanted to be more committed to genocide. Like you could <laughs> do this kind of hack yourself so that you like do everything more efficiently. There's nothing normative about it, mm -hmm. right? So she doesn't tell you what your goals should be. And I, I have a big problem with that, right? Because... You have all these students at Yale, which is supposedly like one of our best institutions of education in this country, if not the world. And you're telling them what it means to be happy is like kind of whatever you think it means. Right. Uh, it's whatever makes you feel good. Mm. That's a completely material condition. She admitted on stage that like if you could just drug yourself into this like that would be fine or if you if, if you could just like 
simulate it in virtual mm. reality space, like that would be fine. So it's just states of of conscious experience. Like happiness is this yeah. feeling, uh, positive sets of feelings, and that's it. It certainly has yeah. nothing to do with man's end, right? I mean, it's like uh, no, yeah, she just... doesn't believe that we have an end. Yeah. I mean, and so it was. It was very interesting. I mean, at some point, like in our dialogue, I was just like, yeah, I don't know what to say except that's bad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. like, no. you, like you should like you should not think that <laughs> yeah. i i no. think you should not think that so but it was you know it i mean it was a very friendly fruitful exchange yeah. i think the students certainly uh found it entertaining but f you know for me we're like reflecting back on it i think it made me a mixture of sad and angry so sort of sad that this is the kind of education that we're offering yeah and then angry that like the philosophers have given this up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, look, this is our territory. Like we should be doing this. Right. Like we've we've thought about this. Yeah. You know, because because ultimately I think it is just extremely shallow. And and it's just not it's not even difficult to see that it's extremely shallow. And then you see how Yale kind of promotes this. And it's become a it's become a real money maker for Yale, and yeah. and it's been really good for their brand, and that makes me sad too yeah. because because it's actually just extremely shallow and 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 ultimately a vision of what it means to a hum to be a human person that I, I think is simply false, and I think it's not that hard to show that it's if not false at least deeply problematic and forces you to bite a bunch of bullets that you probably don't want to bite. Mm. Can, I, can I ask you something that you kind of are hinting at here that I, I've always wondered, you know, and you speak pretty plainly, so I think you're going to give me a nice blunt answer. Here. <laughs> um, it seems like, like this is not like you versus her idea is not like Thomism versus like, I don't know, like John Paul Sartre or something like that. It's like, mm. what, it's like her idea to me seems so shallow. Okay. Like that holding seems so shallow and i wonder like the depth of her commitment to this it's it's hard for me to understand this it's yeah. very very hard for me to understand this like and i think that's because you just you have different first principles right okay. i mean so ultimately she's coming to this as like a very committed materialist okay yeah and so the way that she understands the human person, I think, is just fundamentally different from yeah. you. And the way she's kind of thinking about what a good human life is, is just in a different conceptual framework than you're thinking about it. And that's certainly true for me, too. You know, I'm, I'm not a, a materialist. And, and, and materialism is said in many ways, you mm -hmm. know, they're right. more right. like, like Marx is a really sophisticated materialist. Right. She's not that. This is a bit. <laughs> this is a bit cruder. Yeah. Well, it's populist, but, right? Like, don't don't. Like, it is to me. It's, it's like uh, right. this is this is the. It's like riding the top of the wave of the self help. It is. It totally well, sure. is experience, sure. right? But like, but that's like masquerading as a philosophy of life. Right. And I and I of course and I reject self help, right? I mean lots of I in want the other people to help me. That's what I want. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't understand how anyone does self help after Lost in the Cosmos. Like he he just Walker <laughs> Percy just destroyed that entire genre. Amen. There should be nothing left of it. Amen. And man, because ultimately, obviously as a Christian, I, I don't think 
this project of helping ourselves is the right one. Like we should go to God and ask for help. Mm. Mm. Right. It's a good <laughs> because, because at the end of the day, like that's, that's what we need. Yeah. We need to pray for God's grace. And, and to come to see that is to gain a, a really healthy heaping of self-knowledge, right? Because once you realize like, oh, I, I actually cannot hack myself or fix myself, like what's wrong with me is not something I can fix. Mm. That's if you, if you come to see that and, and I'm a convert, so I can say like, there was a time when I came to see that and it just changed everything, right? Like nothing was the same. Once I realized like the things in me that are broken, I can't fix. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think of this part of my, my descent into the madness of trying to like evangelize in the Catholic church today is when you realize, so I wrote my undergrad thesis on McIntyre and I was trying to get into virtue ethics. I was Dr. Patrick Lee, who's a natural lawyer. Everything is law, sure, law, law. Sure. And I, he was my advisor. And I was He's talking- how I found you. Huh? Dr. Lee has shared something of oh, yours. Right. So you went to Steubenville. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We both did. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. We're both members horseness. of the uh, mothership. I'll never yeah. forget horseness because of Dr. Lee. Yeah. Horseness. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. I have to say this one horseness. story. He was illustrating. He was illustrating essences and he was using <laughs> letters. And he did not mean to do this because someone said something that started with the letter P. So he wrote P on the board and then he wrote, so the essence of P is it's Pete. Oh my God. And he said penis. And it was is the that funniest a real thing <laughs> that I was a sophomore in college. I, I laughed for a solid hour and a half. And, uh, and, and then he said, if you think this is bad, a priest one time gave a homily on contraception to the student body. And he said, guys, this is where the moral teaching becomes applicable. This is where the rubber meets the road. And then everyone lost it again. And so he just ended class. It was beautiful. But um, yeah, so (laughs) he was my thesis advisor and he was awesome. One, because he looks like Pierce Brosnan, but two, he does. uh, does. (laughs) Yeah. People, he would walk in and people would play the 007 theme song when he'd come in. Um, but uh because Zoomville is not a serious place uh but (laughs) we would do we would have these conversations and one of them was so fascinating he was like you know all of his work like is in the moral sphere with with uh robert george and especially in the marriage issue and abortion abortion was huge when i was there with with him and as you know we were always writing papers on these things and reading reading Mm -hmm. articles and stuff a lot of peter peter what's his name peter sanger singer singer yeah but one of the interesting things that i learned with mcintyre that has helped me so much in my evangelization is realizing you have to convert someone like it's an undergoing of a full conversion when they when you're having these disagreements like these political disagreements these moral disagreements and you're Mm -hmm. both like you said you're starting from different first principles so you both are being logical according to your first principles and you're coming to radically different conclusions Mm-hmm. And, and so for the other person to he- see and hear your argument, you know, because they belong to a different scheme, even though you're using the same words like justice and good and rights and all that stuff, you're talking past each other. And so for mm-hmm. someone like for me, it was having someone who was hardcore pro-choice activist. They don't just become pro-life. Often they also become Christian, right? You start noticing like Dr. Bernard Nathanson, 25,000 abortions. And then he converts and Roe from Roe v. Wade, then she converts. There's like this thing because you are like a moral conversion going from one set of first principles, finding them inadequate, and then hopping Mm -hmm. to a whole other set of first principles Mm -hmm. is what I I began seeing. Like, I don't know how to do 
like conversion ministry is how I teach morality to high school students. Let me put it that way, because you're wrestling against two or three or 20 snippets of, of different moral systems. You know, they're all a little Lockean. They're all a little Hobbesian. They're all terrifyingly uh, solipsistic. And you're trying to pull together these things and they just look at you like you're alien. And Mm -hmm. so my approach has always been, okay, well, let's just hang out. Let's spend more time with first principles than we, than we ever do with going through kind of like the meat of it, the application of it, because they, mm-hmm. I need to win them for first principles. And part of that mm-hmm. is understanding happiness. You know, what is one desire mm-hmm. that we all have, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, yeah, that, that's that uh, as an evangelization strategy, trying to catechize godless heathen high school students who, who go to Catholic <laughs> churches. Uh, that, that's yeah. what I've, that's been the approach. Yeah. I think that's good because I think what a lot of young people don't have is a framework for understanding themselves. And that seems equally a problem in my experience for Catholic teenagers as for anyone else. You know, they they are getting their framework for understanding themselves largely from the culture. Mm-hmm. And that's an incoherent mess. <laughs> it is. It is. So you know, I, I I was thinking about this the other day that with my kids. Like there was a time when I would like, sh- well, still to this day, right? I'd shelter them from certain things, but then like the world is so aggressive, right? There are certain things you can't shelter them from, and so you right. you have to address it, right? Okay, and kind of at at some point in my parenting, I kind of like had this switch where it was like, okay, if they're gonna be exposed to this. I have to make sure that they're exposed more to truth, beauty, and goodness, like that those mm-hmm. three things. And it's interesting that like, I feel like it is like the <laughs> beauty and goodness are getting older and older and older. The examples of beauty and goodness are getting older and older and older, which is mm-hmm. fine, but it would be nice if the church and, 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 those who are on the side of truth could catch up like the arts and culture could catch up to the philosophers. Yeah. So Dana Joya has written and and spoken a lot about this. I think one really fair criticism of the contemporary church is that they lost their connection to the arts. And I don't think there's like a simple or easy story about how that happened. I don't think that, you know, the church just decided one day, like, yeah, we just don't care anymore. It was much more complex than that, but it is a really serious loss. And I, and I do think that we ought to be thinking seriously about how to reinvigorate the fine arts, the creative arts, just knowledge of art, you know, appreciation of art, right? Like, why isn't it a part of Catholic education to be able to appreciate an opera or a symphony or something like this, you know, a a painting. Mm -hmm. These are skills that we acquire and we get them through exposure to these things. Yeah. I I, I do think that things, if you want good things, you have to invest in them. Yeah. Right. You have to be intentionally cultivating the next generation And, you know, there are movements here and there to do that, but it's going to take, you know, the church is going to have to throw its weight behind it for Mm -hmm. that to work. So for our listeners, what does the concept, how does the concept of happiness help us to think clearly about morality, right? So let's... 
Let's kind of make yeah. a little, little, uh, I guess, one-on-one territory here. And yeah, it's a great question because yeah. I think for most people, including myself, as a young person, I never would have connected morality and happiness. Right. Like that just, you know, morality is like what you have to do to be good. And that often stinks, uh, <laughs> but you do it. You're not even really sure why. You just yeah. know that like, whatever. And then happiness is just something else. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. they're just not, they're just not connected. And sometimes they they work at cross purposes. Like sometimes doing the right thing brings me down, you yeah. know, cause like I really want to do the wrong thing. And part of that has to do with how we think about morality. And then part of it has to do with how we think about happiness. I mean, mm. Laurie Santos is expressing something that most people think yeah. and that most people have thought for a while now. And that is that happiness is something else from morality. That divorce began sometime around the 15th century in our own uh, intellectual tradition. And so there's like practical thinking that's in your self-interest. And that's one kind of practical thinking. Let's call that prudence. And then there's like moral practical thinking and these don't necessarily align. And so, so the question for like modern moral philosophy was why be moral, yeah. especially because half the time it's kind of a drag, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> totally. And what was interesting to me as a young person studying the history of ideas is that I realized like, oh, wait, like there are people who didn't think this, right? Like you read Plato and Aristotle and, and Augustine and, and St. Thomas, and they think that the point of morality is happiness. Yeah. Like what? That's crazy. Except that it's not. <laughs> crazy <laughs> so, like a fox. <laughs> that's crazy like a fox. That's Aristotle. Uh, but um, no, I've, I just became really drawn to this view. And there was one book that had like kind of an oversized influence on me personally and was very instrumental in my own conversion to the faith. Go on. And that, yeah. that is a book called The Sources of Christian Sources of Christian Ethics by yeah. Servas Pinkers. Got my Pinkers readers over there. Yeah, love it. Yeah. It's a game yeah. changer. So yeah, that like rewired all my neurons, basically. Wait, why would anyone who's not in a graduate level of theology, how did you find that book? That's a good story, actually. <laughs> um, Wait a second. So, I, so I, I was in a medieval philosophy class. Okay. And, and I'm just like really into St. Thomas. I'm like, this is rad, you know? And I'm not a Christian. I'm a, I'm a pagan, basically. And I'm just like, wow, this, this just, just makes so much sense, you know? And I was especially interested in the stuff on natural law and kind of thinking about nature and reason as integrated. And I was like, wow, I just had no idea you could think that. I just thought nature and reason were totally different. And so I was interested in kind of like going a little bit deeper. And my medieval philosophy professor, who was an atheist, was like, oh, you should really read this chapter in this book. And he gives me pink hairs. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so, so I read it. It was the part about freedom of excellence versus freedom oh, of indifference. Love that chapter. Yeah. Oh, that is and cool. I loved it so much that I just read the whole book. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll read the whole thing. Like maybe yeah. all of the book is this good. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, is. it was. It, is. Yeah. it was. Yeah. 
But no, it really it was really blew my mind in lots of ways. And it just set me down a, a path that I stayed on. Yeah. I, I found that for a lot of Catholic high school students, when I introduce them to these concepts, like they love the idea of the distinction between a freedom of indifference. You know, you got option A, you got option B. That's what we've reduced freedom mm -hmm. to. Am I constrained right. to do A and B or can I do A and B? But right. then when you introduce them to freedom for excellence, like, oh, there's, right. a, there's a purpose. That's what that preposition mm -hmm. for means. Right. It's for right. something. They right. immediately get that. I mean, all of them are, you know, we have these kids who are, you know, AP classes. You got kids who are, uh, you know, trying to get into college sports scholarships and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Sure. They understand, at least within those contexts, that you discipline and say no to a trillion different things because you're trying to say one big yes to you know this sport or this instrument right. or whatever and it's like yes yeah. as a as a, a man is to a good man what a harpist is to a good harpist what a soccer player is to a good soccer player like there's analogies here that we can walk through and they come alive with that and the other thing i found is so i would draw three circles on the board law and freedom and then in between them on the low like a triangle i would put happiness mm -hmm. and then it's like what do you have when you have law without when you take away happiness what is law it's the imposition of someone who right. has more power over you, right. right? And then what do you, how do you define freedom? Well, it's freedom from someone's imposition of their will on my will. But once you have right. happiness to the mix, the God who calls me to happiness is the God who gave me the law. Then I can right. understand the law is not antagonistic and oppositional to me. It's actually an expression of wisdom. And then right. freedom is not license but it's actually my choice to cooperate with his divine plan. Like all of a sudden these yeah. threads and there've been people like I, I, I talk about this one individual that came from a very abusive home and very strict Catholic environment. And, uh, and for her, this was like literally healing to mm. hear that God wills her happiness. Yeah. Right. It's very profound. I mean, if you really let that sink in and kind of explore the fullness of the meaning of that, that God wills you into being to be happy and forever, right? That's a lot, right? That's a lot <laughs> to think about. And it's never how I thought about religion. I mean, I grew up in a, in a really secular house and I had a lot of strange views about religion, but a lot of it did track my experience yeah. with evangelical Christians. And it really was kind of this, well, one, you're just saved and- mm. So don't worry about it, uh, which I thought was ridiculous. And then two, um, this idea that, well, we just, we do this because God said it, right? I mean, yeah. it just, what other reason could there be? <laughs> um, and that was so um, just dissatisfying to me. I was like, well, I, okay, did God have a reason? <laughs> I mean, like, like what's, yeah. and so God was just this figure of power. It was just power. Yeah. And you're just under this authority. And so you obey. That was never attractive to me. And I didn't have any other kind of theological alternative in my head. And then when I read St. Thomas, I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, this is not that. Yeah. And it was so sophisticated. And it was, frankly, it was just so compelling. I mean, I think I always joke that like I fell in love with St. Thomas when I was 18, but it's really true. Like yeah. I was like, yeah, I found it so compelling. And I, but I also think I found it beautiful. And I, I still think that, yeah. you know, it's just, it is beautiful. beautiful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The beauty and the it, cathedral sure. of yeah. words that when you get into, once you can adapt yourself to the way he 
does yeah. things. Right. All of a sudden you're like, how? I had no problem with that. Yeah. I was just like, I mean, uh, but I'm very, you know, people will like poo-poo scholasticism and I'm like, uh, it was the best. It's <laughs> been <laughs> yeah. like, all downhill right from now? there. Like I would go back in a second. <laughs> Screw we Occam. Clearly... That's another shirt we're going to make. Screw Occam. Uh, <laughs> I would send me like 12 of them <laughs> if you do. I'd like to take Occam's razor to his theology and philosophy. No, okay, I'm done. I, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, without Occam, you don't have Luther. I'm even a SCOTUS hater. Just oh putting that goodness. out there. Wow, I know, you, I know. You talk so yeah. plainly. I love it. Um, <laughs> let me ask a question before we have to go to a break real quick. Okay, so, and I feel like my teachers from high school who are all from TAC are going to, like, contact me and disown me. But, but I'm going to say this anyway. So <laughs> it used to be there was a time when philosophy – in academia trickled down right over hundreds of years okay like trickled down to people but that is not the case anymore right like with social media and all that kind of stuff like atheists who are in high school who are like 12 year old little punks right are learning philosophy from materialist philosophers on youtube or something like that oh yeah see all the time absolutely and and i guess my question is like a lot of the people who listen to us work for the church professionally, their DREs, mm-hmm. things like that. They, they, they're not mm-hmm. going to be able to go back and, and get a great books education overnight. They're not going to be able to enroll in a you know philosophy program or something like that. Are there resources? Are there books that you recommend that would help them evangelize? Maybe not tomorrow, but like next year, right? It would help them talk more clearly to the culture. I mean, Aquinas 101. Uh, the Thomistic Institute podcast. Okay. Those so are good. my top two. I mean, Aquinas 101 is is just so brilliant. Right. It's yeah. brilliant. And I mean, I watch them. I love them. <laughs> oh, is that what <laughs> matter in form stuff. is? God! I, I, <laughs> like, I learn stuff. Yeah. And and yeah. and I've been thinking about St. Thomas for some time now. Yeah. <laughs> I think, it's. I'm, I feel like I'm a little bit bad at at this sort of thing because what, I'm so into <laughs> abstract arguments that I feel like <laughs> what I'm going to recommend might be ridiculous. Gomer does it all the time. But, he constantly recommends all the time. So <laughs> Alistair McIntyre and I'm like, okay, have them all go get a master's in philosophy and then read After Virtue. So I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I read, I read After Virtue when I was 18 or 19 and it just, it blew me away. Yeah. Yeah, it blew me away. I think that 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 was like the key to unlocking political debate, right? Like, why do all of our arguments become shrill, right? Because mm-hmm. we have different first principles, we reason logically to different conclusions, and then we mm-hmm. just yell at each other. What's I think you're lucky like, you didn't meet Gomer when you were 18. Because I, I was the shrillest. <laughs> I was the shrillest, let me tell you. That was uh, my nickname in high school. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, but it. I, so what would be your book recommended? Would you say for someone wanting to start out? Because to me, Pink Ayers has morality, the Catholic view that uh, mm-hmm. I think yeah. McIntyre, he wrote the forward to, and, and mm-hmm. that's a 90-page version of his 500-page Sources of Christian Ethics. That's always my mm-hmm. recommendation. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Light of Christ by Thomas Joseph White. I, th- I think it's really uh, solid. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a hard read for some people. That's a hard. I fell asleep twice. See, this is On the bus. I'm... I fell asleep. I was on a bus. High school students totally <laughs> fell There's asleep. a reason why mine says Dave and Gomer says Gomer and yours says Dean Fry <laughs> on, on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna come back in just a minute after hearing a message from our uh, sponsors here at Ascension Press. Thank you so much for listening. We love to hear from you. As always, if you have any questions about evangelization, discipleship, or really anything, email us at eksb at ascensionpress.com. 
Hi, I'm Jeff Cavins, and I'm excited to introduce you to the Ascension app. It contains the full text of the Great Adventure Bible, the full text of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and both the Bible and Catechism in a Year podcast. The app has special features that make the connections between the Bible and the Catechism crystal clear, like color-coded crosslinks and easy navigation. It also answers nearly 1,000 questions from Bible in a Year listeners about the Bible with videos from myself and others, also audio clips and excerpts from Ascension's popular books. To download the app, simply go to the App Store on your phone and search Ascension. I hope you enjoy it. I enjoy it. Carry it around everywhere I go. Welcome back to Every Knee Shall Bow. We're having an awesome conversation with Dr. Jennifer Frey here about happiness and philosophy. And uh, we're we're having this great conversation about even just getting some exposure to academia today. Dr. Frey, it's been so great to talk to you. I mean, the topic's about happiness, right? And um, if you want to kind of like give us kind of an overview of your like focus there, that would be great, I think. So we can, you know. Yeah, so happiness... Happiness is such a great topic because to think about happiness is to think about everything in a way, to think about happiness from the perspective of the Christian Catholic intellectual tradition is to have to think about nature and grace. It's to have to think about nature and reason. It's to have to think about law and virtue. It's like Everything just kind of comes together when you're thinking about happiness. I think, you know, the, the the basic idea that the church is giving people is that you were created to be happy. And happiness is something that is the special province of rational creatures, right? So like, you know, your dog can't be happy in St. Thomas's sense. And, and he says this very clearly. Don't get mad at me, dog owners. <laughs> Who rescued him? Who rescued and, him? <laughs> and, you know, the, I, but the idea of happiness is the idea of your final end, right? It's kind of like where you're going with your life. And the idea is that, well, there is a final end, a sumum bonum, an ultimate good. And it's something that once possessed can't, can't be lost. And it's also not a matter of, of luck, right? Like it won't just be a matter of luck, whether or not you're happy that you have a substantial role to play in whether or not you reach your destination, but, it, but that it's also part of your nature. It's part of your nature to have that end. Like you don't choose what it is. Everything that you choose is either progressing you towards it or not, but you don't choose the end. And you don't choose whether or not you want to be happy. You just want to be happy, right? You have this kind of Augustinian restless heart that's going to keep gnawing away at you unless it's fulfilled. And so St. Thomas says, well, everybody like agrees that they want to be happy, but people disagree about what happiness is, right? So he goes through like a variety of options. Like, is it, well, is it money? Is it power? Is it pleasure, right? What, what is it? It's not any of those things. He has arguments against it being any of those things. But what he ultimately says is what, whatever makes you happy has to fulfill or complete you given the kind of thing you are. And, and what are you fundamentally? You're a rational creature. You're a thing that knows and loves, but loves through knowing. 
right? The will is a, is a higher rational kind of desire. And so you have a natural desire to know, right? To have that kind of reality with being through knowing and understanding a kind of intellectual communion. Um, but then you also have this desire to want to possess what you know is good. And he thinks that these rational capacities that you have aren't fulfilled by any finite good. Like no matter how much you know, there's always more for you to know. No matter how many goods you collect, there's always, you're still going to want things. So what's the good that's going to perfect you, to fulfill you, such that there's nothing left for you to know and there's nothing left for you to want? That's God. So that is your final end. Your final end is what is going to fulfill and perfect and complete you so that you're not, your heart's not going to be restless anymore. He makes a case that that can only be God. And so then the question is, all right, how do you get to God? <laughs> right? And there the path is through virtue, right? The virtues that, you know, the pagans would have recognized, mm -hmm. like justice and wisdom and fortitude and temperance and all of the virtues that go under those. But those won't get you to God, at least not completely. You also need the, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And that's where you get the interplay of nature and grace. Grace perfects nature, but does not destroy it. And so really, I mean, happiness is is right at the center. It's right at the center of of natural law. It's right at the center of creation. It's right at the center of, you know, Catholic moral teaching. But it's also just right at the center of your life because it's it's what you're meant. It's what you were created to to possess. And I think that once you realize that, that's a kind of completely reorienting your way of understanding yourself, your relationship with God, like what, what you're aiming for and why. And that also, I think, profoundly affects the way that you understand sin and the need to avoid sin. Because it's like, well, I don't know what's so bad with sinning. Well, it's because you can't be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, Cheryl Crow kind of... said, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. That's what she right. said. Yeah. Well, maybe check in on her and see how she's <laughs> doing. <laughs> um, but, oh, that's awesome. But, right, the reason why sin must always be avoided at all costs is because it prevents you from being totally fulfilled and, and, and being with God. And, and that's, that's the whole thing. And I think what's really powerful about this is that you realize that all the other things that you're so focused on are so insignificant compared to mm. the thing that you were really made for. And also to understand that all of the created goods in this life, which are, are so truly wonderful, are ultimately oriented towards that good that you don't yet possess. And that, you know, don't yet possess is actually also really fundamental to how you understand yourself in your life. You know, that you're a wayfarer, right. that you live in hope right. of something that is both wonderful and difficult. Yeah. And so what is your, what, what are you willing to sacrifice for that? And the answer should be everything. Right. I should be yeah. willing to sacrifice everything right. if I am for some reason called Pearl to do that. Price. 
All, right. all lesser goods. Yeah. Because it is everything. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of that Simpsons quote where Homer says, Marge, I love you. I would do anything for you. I would die for you. I would kill for you. Please let me kill for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please let me kill for you. Yeah. No, it's, it's, that's so yeah. beautiful. Like the, the, yeah, the final good, the ultimate good. The, the thing that I love about first the Wayfarer, because that's the, I think the modern malaise, right? Of like, they despair so that when you ditch God, the Wayfarer status, right? We're on the way is still there. Mm-hmm. The becoming, right? The, mm-hmm. this journey but they've gotten rid of the destination, right? So mm-hmm. one generation is waiting on Godot. They're hopeless and there's this malaise. And the next generation is like, cool, I have nowhere to go. Any road will take me there, right? And there's this funny like back and forth between it. But this is where, uh, to me, this is where Athens bends the knee to Jerusalem because it tells mm-hmm. the right orientation, but not the full story. And the full story is at the end, right? Is the end of our journey, ma- thus making the journey a pilgrimage. There is a place. We have hope because yeah. there's a destination and there's yeah. a destination because the one who built that destination journeyed to us first. Right. Well, yeah. And, and Walker Percy and, and his um, national book award winning novel, The Moviegoer, <laughs> you know, that's a story about someone who is a pilgrim, but doesn't quite get it. Yeah. Right. Like right. he doesn't right. like, like he kind of has the sense that like he should be searching for something, but like he's, he's just got no clue how to do this. <laughs> He's just stumbling yeah. around in the dark, but, but he, he's, he's, he is Banks is a pilgrim without faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a, it's a great novel. Yeah. I, I, the, I think the danger now, like in the stories is it used to be like you conquer something and you get the, the princess and you conquer the castle. Right. And now it's just, no, you just have to know, just find out who you are. Right. That's, there's no, no journey. There's no conquering or anything like that. It's all about you. you. Right. right. It's all about you. you. And, and, and frankly, I mean, that's just a disaster. It is. (laughs) And we're watching it. Like like if it's all about me. Oh, have you met I know. I am a petty God. I am a very petty God. I would smite everyone. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, we are our own worst enemies. Imagine like raising generations of kids to just focus on themselves. What a disaster. You don't have to imagine. That's the last thing you should do. Forget about yourself. Go pursue what's good. Like, you know, I mean, the best thing you could tell young people is to get over themselves. Exactly. It really is just like, I mean, frankly, everyone, it's like, well, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's just... (laughs) Maybe it's fine that that <laughs> maybe we're you, born with you know, it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's just like get over it. Yeah. I don't know. I had my kids write essays on uh, <laughs> this is like adventures in in dad's uh, obsessions. But uh, I had my kids each write an essay, so they range in age of thirteen to eight. Life is hard. You are not important. Your life is not about you. You are not in control. You are going to die. And I said, pick a topic and write me an essay on it. And my daughter was devastated by you are not important my oldest my little taylor swifty daughter you know and she's just she was like that's the that's the rudest thing anyone has ever said to me <laughs> and i was like okay i was like honey, honey i just want to tell you a quick story it's medicine i was like i love the people at my old job i ha- i love them they love me we were really good friends i quit i left we don't really keep in contact anymore they have a thing to do they have a job to do they have a life to do 
I'm not important. Life goes on. Was it Billy Graham? 15 minutes after the funeral, the number one question people are asking is, where's the potato salad? Right? Like you right. hear that line and you're like, oh, yeah, life goes on. Life goes on. And so for her, it sure she, does. she had to sit and meditate on, on the brutalness of you are not important, but she's still important to me. Mm-hmm. And, right. and then all of a sudden she's like, huh, okay. And then the next step I said to her, this is funny, I said to her last week because I'm teaching this class. I'm feeling, <laughs> well, I, I, my kids go to this ordinariate. We were members of the ordinariate and my pastor teaches a class on Plato and he's out of town. And so I'm teaching it. <laughs> we're doing the Republic. And I just walked up to her and I go, me and you are going to sit down and go through every Taylor Swift song that I don't know. And we're just going to go through the lyrics. And she just looked at me and she goes, no other dads are doing this. And I was like, well, I'm raising you to be a, raising you to be a philosopher king. Okay. So uh, I need to go okay. through all of your music. We're only going to have military dirges from here on out. It's going to be awesome. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of just to pick up one thread of that, I feel like we really underestimate kids and teenagers. Yeah when we don't recognize that they are capable of and they need fortitude. Yeah. They need that strength of spirit, that courage, that resolve, that endurance. And that when we just focus so much on making them feel good, we do a profound disservice to them because the world won't treat them that way. Right. No. And no. we're supposed to be preparing them for the world. And we're not doing a good job. And, and you know, I'm, I'm glad that in some circles we've recognized that young men need fortitude, but I'm sorry, but young women need it as well. Right. It is a human virtue. And it might express itself differently in, in men and women, but it's, it's the same stuff, really, yeah. of the soul. And we really need to get serious about that again. And I always joke with my students that fortitude is like the worst virtue because the only way you get it is by suffering. (laughs) There's just no other way to grow and feel like you just have to suffer. But it's actually like important to see that. It's important to see the role that that plays in our lives. And and athletes can see it, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're willing to suffer for glory. Yeah. Right. Uh, Which is fine and good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with glory. The only problem is if that's the only thing, right, that you're, or or if there's a different sense of glory, maybe. Mm. And and that's, right, that's what you really want. And you need fortitude for that, right? right? Because, well, I mean, yeah, hopefully it's obvious. Yeah. But I, you know, I think we need to get real with kids and start having them have the stuff to persevere gird to endure. Their loins. To, gird their loins. That's right. They got to right. gird their loins. Exactly. Like the rest of us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Frey, this has been such a fantastic conversation, and we're so thankful that you came on with us. I'm happy we said gird, gird your loins in this podcast. That makes me very happy. <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah. subjective yeah. experience of happiness right here. <laughs> Besides your podcast, Sacred and Profane, are there any other places we can find you or you, anything you want to? I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm all over the place. I know. Um, so I still, you can still, I, I still do stuff with TI, not as much as I used to, you know, I'm still, I was recently in the wall street journal and I'm, I'm still writing for various places. I don't know you could follow me on X 
aka Twitter. X gonna give it to you. See, see what a, see yeah. what I'm up to. I'm somehow still on that website. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see for how long. Great. Yeah, and the podcast, by the way, is coming back. I yes. just yeah, good. I'm trying to figure out how to get it into patron, the Dean so workflow. I feel like I get special. But, oh well, I'm so, well. I've been ignoring you. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're we're trying to bring it back. It's just that being a dean is really intense, yeah. and I'm trying to trying to fit it in. So, but we're making progress. We're real close. Nice. Great, nice. Great. Can't awesome. wait. Can't wait. Thanks so, so much for being and profane on. love. Love it where you're bringing in philosophers, theologians, uh, talk about literature, all this great stuff. I have a priest. I send him episodes, and I'm like, you need to get into literature, and he's like, I don't have time for fiction, and I was like, you don't have time for not fiction. <laughs> ah, yeah. So. Yeah. You've got time. You just got to make some Actually, time. I don't know if he does. He's everywhere all the time. Works 12 or 20 hours a day. It's crazy. Anywho, thank you very much, Dean Frey, for coming on the show. This has been awesome. And we'll put links to all the stuff in the show notes so people who listen can find out and follow you and, and learn so much more about happiness. So thank you for coming on the show. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. God bless. 